the thing that is different today from before is that now, instead of the situation I had where I was encouraged to talk about issues in the country so that we could grapple with race in America, there's a fear of being fired, of being demonized, of being ostracized, completely delegitimized in your teaching profession, and potentially being sued in civil court. Hello and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk. And for those of you watching this podcast, yes, we are finally back in our studio. Although, don't worry, if you miss my apartment, we will still be back there often enough. All right, the podcast today. Since January 2021, 11 states have passed some version of anti-critical race theory law. And close to 200 bills have been introduced in 40 states. Also, last fall, Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin's win was credited in part with a parental backlash that included concerns about CRT. But what are these laws actually doing? What is the impact both in the classroom and at the ballot box of laws that regulate how teachers can talk about race and racism? And why has this become such a focus of our politics? That's what today's episode is all about. And here with me to discuss is director of the Fellows Program at the Brennan Center for Justice, Theodore Johnson. He's a writer at The Bulwark and recently wrote on this topic for 538. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. So what does the landscape across the country look like right now? I mentioned that 11 states have passed some kind of anti-CRT law, but of the nearly 200 bills otherwise, are many of them likely to also become law? So, no. There's been, as you mentioned, something like 185 laws introduced in 40 states across the country since January of 2021. The last time we looked at this, which is just over a week or so ago, about 80-plus of those bills were pending in the states now. And of those 80, 12 have passed. And one of the ones that passed was in Arizona that was sort of repealed by the Arizona Supreme Court. So we've got 11 standing laws and just over 80 pending laws. Now, these are only the ones that are particular to K through 12. So there are additional laws that are specific to state agencies around DEI training that are anti-CRT and around colleges that forbid the teaching of anti-CRT laws there. But the ones we looked at in K through 12, that's where we are. So we see this a lot when we look at state-level legislation, that any random legislator can introduce a bill, and oftentimes some pretty wild things get introduced in state legislatures. But of the provisions that have actually been signed into law, what kinds of rules are there about what can be taught in K-12 through schools? These are almost all, both the ones that have passed and the ones that are still pending, mostly just message bills. Every single one of these, all 180 plus of the ones introduced since January of 2021, were introduced by Republican state legislatures, legislators, or committees in Republican-controlled state legislatures. And so there's really been no hiding the fact that this is what these bills are trying to do, because once you read the text of these bills— you find that they're not actually outlawing things that are either part of CRT or that are things teachers were teaching in the first place. The vast majority of them are outlawing ideas like teaching that one race is inherently superior or inferior to another, or that you're forbidden from teaching that a student should feel ashamed or guilty because of something that happened hundreds of years ago. So their message bills, number one, and two, the things that they're forbidden are basically things that the 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause says uh, aren't constitutional anyway. The things that they're not forbidding, 
like critical race theory, are probably not forbidden explicitly, certainly in the ones that have passed, because doing so might run into some First Amendment kinds of questions. This is really a way of signaling to a particular part of the electorate where these legislators stand on this manufactured controversial issue of of critical race theory. You're saying that essentially, as these laws are written that have passed, it won't have any impact on what is or can be taught in the classroom. For the most part, I think the one exception there is Texas's law. Texas does outlaw things like the 1619 Project. It does say you must teach certain civic skills or civic education tenets. But aside from those, the others basically are derived from a executive order that President Trump signed in September of 2020 around these things that he called divisive concepts or racial stereotyping and scapegoating, which are not things that are part of any of the school districts we looked at part of their curriculum, which is, again, teaching things like one group is inherently superior to another group. So I think at this point, people broadly know that critical race theory is an academic idea that racism permeates American society in such a way that even race-blind laws and institutions are still racially prejudiced. Is there more to it than that? And do these bills expand the definition beyond that? So I think the bumper sticker version of CRT is what you described, that if we were to objectively look at our systems, our institutions, our laws and policies, that they are constructed in such a way that produces racial inequality and will continue to do so without some sort of proactive intervention. What these laws are outlawing is not that. What these laws are outlawing is a distorted version of critical race theory that frankly has been broadened to the point where it gives lots of discretion to administrators and to principals to determine what can be taught And the thing that administrators and principals are looking to avoid are students who are made to feel guilty or some sort of anguish based on what is taught. So what these laws are outlawing is basically honest conversations about racism, maybe not explicitly in the text of the letter, but implicitly in the chilling effect that they're going to have on teachers. In the text, it says things, again, like you can't teach that one group is inherently superior or inferior to another. They call that critical race theory. But that is not one of the tenets of the framework. This is sort of the state of play now. And frankly, again, because there are such message bills, you could probably teach critical race theory and still be within the letter of the law, given how some of these are written. So you're saying that applying the text, it doesn't seem like much in the classroom would change, but that you think teachers are still feeling hesitant about how they're talking about race and racism because of the existence of the laws. Yes, 100%. Look, there was a principal in Coffeyville, Texas, who was recently fired. And he was fired because in the weeks after George Floyd was killed in 2020, he said that systemic racism was partly responsible for it. And then in September of 2021, a parent found those remarks and said that that principal was teaching critical race theory. This is what's happening. Cases like this in Tennessee and Missouri are, are similar in how these laws are being applied. In Texas, are they like actually citing this law? I mean, you know, local school districts have some latitude in terms of how they can fire people and why they fire people and so on. But are they actually referring to these laws in punishing teachers? Or is it you're outside of the bounds of what we want taught in our schools, you got to go? So in Texas, I don't think they referred to the law because I don't know that the law in Texas was in place at the time of the parent 
raising this issue last September. Missouri, where a teacher was fired, Missouri doesn't actually have a law on the books, but the school board met after a teacher assigned a racial privilege worksheet as part of a class reading that she was doing. And the school board met in private and fired her because of a student reporting that they felt anguish once they were reading this this worksheet and prep for a longer discussion on a school-approved novel. In some cases, like the one I just cited, a law wasn't even on the books to be cited. Only 24 bills introduced in Missouri were in the ether there, but none on the books were signed by the governor into law itself. So it sounds like there are a couple things going on. There are these messaging bills, some of which are passing in state legislatures, but there's also at the local level debates and concerns about how race and racism is being taught in the classroom. I think the response from the left has largely been that critical race theory isn't, in fact, being taught in classrooms. And some of the examples that you cite in your writing, like the ones that you just brought up, are of teachers being punished for talking about American society being racist, even when it isn't necessarily explicitly racist. And that sort of tracks with some of the evolving ways that Democrats have talked about race over the past eight years or so, perhaps since 2015 and the Black Lives Movement. So how is race being talked about in public schools today, and has it changed in recent years? Some of the laws actually encourage teachers to talk about Jim Crow, encourage teachers to talk about slavery. I don't know of any instance where conversations about this kind of history, certainly at the high school level, have been scrubbed from history curriculum because of these laws or in anticipation of these laws or sort of the culture, the conversation around them. So race is being talked about. The the question is the assignments that teachers give to students in preparation for talks about racism and I think the opinions of the teachers as they share their views on the material. So one teacher in Tennessee shared a ta Coates article, um, the, the first white president, I think was the title of it, writing about Donald Trump's victory, was fired for signing that essay. And, you know, that essay talks explicitly about structural systemic racism, which is a tenet of critical race theory. But the teacher wasn't teaching critical race theory. The teacher was having a conversation about the ways race figured into the last presidential election through the eyes of one writer. Arguably, this is what you would want your teachers to do, to present articles for critique, for discussion, to sort of engage the ideas there. What is happening, in fact, is that teachers are less willing, based on the reporting that's come out, to talk about these things at all. Because if they dare venture into opinion, or if they dare present some set of readings that students don't agree with or may feel anguish as a result of, that could cost the teacher their job or their certification to teach elsewhere, never mind that it could cost the school financial penalties. So this is sort of what's going on. I guess my question here is, are the anti-CRT movement laws, whatever, reacting to something actually changing in schools? There was a long Washington Post article about the teacher from Tennessee who you mentioned who was fired, and he was reprimanded various times for how he talked about political issues in his current events class, oftentimes pertaining to race. And it seemed like the last straw was showing a video of a poet, Kyla Janae Lacey, who talks about white privilege, swears a lot, and says some controversial things like that the Bush response to Katrina was eugenics. That is a different way of talking about race and racism than I think 
maybe a lot of people who are even in school a decade ago, or for many people who are still in school today, K through 12 school today, are used to hearing people talk about race, especially the part about eugenics. It's pretty controversial. Has something changed in schools about how race and racism are discussed or not? Look, in 1992, I was a junior in high school. And one of the assignments I had in my sociology class was to bring a song. All the students had this assignment to bring a song that we could play in front of the class and explain why that song was important to our culture and society. This was right after the four policemen that had beaten Rodney King were acquitted of committing a crime. And so I brought a song from Dr. Dre's The Chronic album talking about how angry Black folks in L.A. were about these police officers being acquitted and essentially being discriminated against by law enforcement for the entirety of their lives. So if I played that song today, would that be critical race theory? Would that be more egregious than someone playing a spoken word poetry clip in class? Would my sociology teacher in 1992 be fired today for being a proponent of critical race theory when we were having a real conversation about what was happening in the country around us? Has the conversation changed? It has changed as much as race relations have changed in our country. Mm -hmm. But what has changed alongside that, which is to say the thing that is different today from before, is that now instead of the situation I had where I was encouraged to talk about issues in the country so that we could grapple with race in America, there's a fear of being fired, of being demonized, of being ostracized, completely delegitimized in your teaching profession, and potentially being sued in civil court for talking about the world around us. Critical race theory didn't get more prominent in schools over the last 30 years. What has happened is Americans have become more sensitive to how race is talked about at all in our school system. And I think that was absolutely exacerbated by some of the executive orders and, and language coming out of the last administration. I, sort of looking back on my education as well, I had teachers who were relatively open about their political views, even both liberal and conservative. In one case, my U.S. history teacher in high school went on to become the Republican mayor of the town while he was still teaching, and he was deployed to Iraq as a Marine for part of the year that I actually had him as a teacher. He spoke positively about the war and about other Republican positions. And so I think that for many people— their teachers' opinions become part of the curriculum. For better or for worse, looking at polling, parents right. don't want that. I think the majority of American parents say that they want more control themselves over the curriculum. But why has this become such an issue now in this moment? And why has it become such an issue for the right? But you don't really hear from the left like, oh, we don't want Republicans teaching their opinions in the classroom. Yeah, so I think this is part of the culture war we're seeing that's being fed by those on the right out of political expedience. And to the extent they can collapse more things into this culture war, they feel like it gives them an advantage in electoral contests. But when we look back at Virginia's gubernatorial election where Glenn Youngkin won, the idea was that because he told the state that he was going to return control of schools to parents and to the local level and get critical race theory and all this COVID you know, conspiracy stuff out of schools, that's why voters in Virginia rewarded him. And so the lesson, and we heard lots of Republican strategists talk about this after Youngkin's victory, was that we need to run a nationwide Youngkin campaign. And part of that is to sort of fear monger over the left or the liberals that are looking to change your children or indoctrinate your children. And some of this language shows up in these bills around indoctrination, that that is no longer acceptable. And so there's an electoral payoff 
for talking about making it seem as though critical race theory has now infiltrated every aspect of your child's life. Not only your child's life in K through 12, but also in college. And not only their lives there, but also in the state agencies that are insisting on DEI training. These bills cover the entire gamut from K through mid-career professional. So that is why I think we're hearing more discussion about this now, because it is proven to be electorally advantageous for one side, and the other side is less willing to engage in a straw man about critical race theory teaching children to hate America. I think there is some debate over the electoral impact. You look at polling and you see people saying that they're concerned about critical race theory, for example, in the Virginia gubernatorial election. But there's also a question, a chicken egg question, which is, Mm -hmm. are these people reliably Republican voters who are hearing this message from whatever right wing media they may consume and parroting it back to pollsters saying, like, I'm really concerned about CRT. But if you look at the demographics disproportionately, these people aren't parents of K through 12 children. I don't know if the jury is still out or not on the electoral impact of all of this. Do you have data that helps inform how you're thinking about this? In Virginia, again, you're absolutely right that the rhetoric around Youngkin's victory was very CRT-laden. As a Virginia resident, I can tell you that most of it was around the way the state handled COVID in public schools and not this fear that CRT was suddenly running rampant. So a couple things. One, I think Republicans are learning the wrong lesson from the CRT debates and the videos of, of parents going nuts at town halls thinking that if we can just lean into this more, the electorate will see the left as being too far gone and will see us as the ones returning local and state control. So let's do that. But what the actual data shows, again, back to Virginia, after Young Ken is in, something like two thirds of Virginians say they still want their children to be taught about racism and still want their children to be taught that racial inequality is no good. So if you want to talk about racial inequality and racism in America, and you don't want to talk about laws and institutions and the structures that feed into it, which is what critical race theory talks about, then what exactly are you supposed to be teaching your children historically or what kind of conversations about race can you have? Some states have said, well, here's a list of things to talk about. You can teach Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. You can have students read Frederick Douglass's What to the Slave is the Fourth of July. So don't avoid topics of racism. But as soon as a teacher begins to offer opinion, as soon as the teacher offers a reading that's adjacent to Frederick Douglass's writings from, you know, 100 plus years ago to something more current, then they run the risk of being lumped in with the CRT sort of fervor going on. And that that could be personally and professionally costly. Yeah, I mean, I was looking at some nationwide polling. So according to a UMass Amherst poll, 75% of American adults say that schools should teach at least some amount about racial inequality. It was 34% say a lot, 28% say some, 13% say a little, and then of course a quarter say none at all. Given that there is broad openness to talking about these issues in schools, where exactly does the controversy lie? Is it in talking about the country as fundamentally racist beyond these specific events? Do people just have it wrong and like parents are all open to these conversations? What is the true controversy here? I think parents are okay with their students talking and learning about race and racism in the abstract. But as soon as you peel that back a little bit and start asking what exactly should students be learning, there's less agreement. I think, generally speaking, parents want their children to know that America wasn't always perfect 
and that this is a story of progress, that the nation has progressed. And so if we can talk about that, the arc that's bending towards justice, we can talk about race in that way. But if we talk about the ugliness of the history absent the arc context, then I think there's a rejection of it in some places. You know, some parents would call that CRT and others would sort of reject talking about these things absent the mythology at all. So that's where it is. I think we agree that it's good to talk about these things generally, but specifically there's less agreement. And this is the problem that the nation is presently wrestling with, among others, is that we acknowledge the role that race plays in our country. We have zero consensus, zero agreement on how we should talk about race what should be done about the inequality that exists, and to the extent we should talk about blame and, and remediation and et cetera. And so if you agree something should be discussed and disagree on all of the things that should be said about it and how it should be taught, then you actually don't agree on what should be discussed beyond some superficial abstract level. Today's podcast is brought to you by Shopify. Ready to make the smartest choice for your business? Say hello to Shopify, the global commerce platform that makes selling a breeze. Whether you're starting your online shop, opening your first physical store, or hitting a million orders, Shopify is your growth partner. Sell everywhere with Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system. Turn browsers into buyers with Shopify's best converting checkout, 36% better than other platforms. Effortlessly sell more with Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Did you know Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and supports global brands like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. Join millions of successful entrepreneurs across 175 countries backed by Shopify's extensive support and help resources. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Start your success story today. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash 538. That's the numbers, not the letters. Shopify.com slash 538. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. This is interesting because I think that this debate that you're talking about isn't only happening in schools. Right. I think it's also happening even within the Democratic Party itself. So I think anyone who watched, in particular, the 2020 Democratic presidential primary saw that Democrats have become much more comfortable talking about American society as racist and openly critiquing racial disparities. And I think even while that was happening and in the aftermath of the 2020 election, there are people within the Democratic Party who are saying, okay, Democrats, you shouldn't do that. The American electorate doesn't want to hear that. You shouldn't talk about race that way. There are a couple ways to approach this question. One is like moralistic. You might believe you should talk about something in a certain way, regardless of whether it's electorally advantageous to you. When it comes to the electoral piece, do you think those critics, people like David Shore, notably, who say, Democrats, the way you talk about this stuff is turning off the majority of the American public, do you think that they're right? 
So I think that the majority of the American public are not far-left Democrats. And so if one party talks about an issue, any issue, in the language of a part of the country that is, you know, maybe a fifth to a little bit more than that, of course, they're going to turn people off in the process. And, and as you noted, the Democratic Party is much more ideologically diverse, it's certainly in practice, than the Republican Party is, and never mind the racial and ethnic diversity, et cetera. And look, if we look at the defund the police controversy within the Democratic Party, I think we get a sense of this. There are those more pragmatic, centrist Democrats, uh, to include folks like folks in the CBC like Clyburn, who said defund the police is a bad slogan because it sends the wrong message to voters. And then within the Democratic Party, but further to the left, there are those that basically ground their argument for defund in critical race theory, that this is an institution that is structurally incapable of producing just outcomes and therefore needs to be completely reevaluated. So both have views, both are within the same party. And I think that there is an audience for both of those views. The question is, if you're trying to build an electable coalition of folks in Congress and or win the White House, then you have to speak in a language that will bring more people into the tent. And if you're using language that is more progressive than most of the nation, then it's most likely that you're going to be unsuccessful in building the kind of broad coalition that you suspect. So I don't want to say this as though like these are folks that just using electoral strategies to try to take the temperature of the country so they can win elections. There are people who earnestly believe that law enforcement needs to be completely rethought to be just. There are those who earnestly believe that a more pragmatic approach to police reform is the better and more tangible way of creating an incrementally better version of our country in the near term. To the extent both of those sides lean into these arguments and how they feed into the critical race theory piece or how the Democratic Party is reconciling a little bit of an identity crisis that it's having, all valid concerns, but doesn't detract from the fact that most Americans are not where some part of these politicians are. I was, you know, in preparation for this conversation, looking up some polling and pulled up an article that my former colleague Perry Bacon Jr. wrote looking at some positions that have a bit more purchase on the left and sort of how that polling compares with what Americans think overall. And the polling shows that, you know, 34% of Americans say that white people benefit a great deal from advantages that black people don't have. I mean, I think that's an idea that is practically universal on the left. 33% of Americans support reparations, 25% support reducing the police force. Again, these were ideas that were pretty alive during the 2020 election. How do you see the Democratic Party reacting to all of this? Like, do you think that they are turning away from these issues? Are they listening to folks like David Shore? Or are there people who want to keep talking about them, are still talking about them, and want to run on them? So I think it depends who in the party you ask. I think there is a cohort within the Democratic Party that is going to lean into this messaging as a way of trying to hold on to office and others who will track more to the center as a way to do the same. So there is no cohesive Democratic message on this, except that the Republican Party's use of critical race theory is an explicit attempt to divide Americans to sort of make this a very black and white binary issue mm -hmm. and force people to choose sides instead of considering issues or, or policies on the merits, issue by issue. So let's not talk about defund. Let's not talk about tax rates. Let's not talk about energy. Let's talk about how the lefts are trying to 
indoctrinate your children with critical race theory. So I think what we're going to see on the Democratic side is Democratic politicians leaning into who they are. If we look at the race in Ohio where Chantel Brown, the incumbent, just defeated Nina Turner in a primary, Nina Turner is more to the left and she is more of part of the cohort that talks more explicitly about structural racism and the need to completely reform institutions. And Chantel Brown is more to the center and she won handily. So the idea that there is a single message for every congressional district that the Democratic Party has to repeat when it comes to race and when it comes to inequality is just not representative of its current constituents. Yeah, this brings up a question that I did want to ask, which is you mentioned that the Democratic elite or portion of Democratic lawmakers, politicians are sort of talk about race in a way that's out of step with voters. Is that out of step across racial lines or are we talking about white voters in particular here? So all of the polling that I've seen from Pew and other places have shown that white Democrats are more liberal than black voters and have become even more so over the last two decades. So yes, there is a a racial component to this. Now, black voters tend to be more pragmatic than other voters in the Democratic Party as a group. And so if the idea to win black voters is to pitch the most progressive message on every issue possible to improve your chances, that is a bad idea because that's not actually what black voters respond to. However, if you neglect to talk about progressive ideas, then you risk losing the increasing number of white voters who identify as liberal. And so if you are a candidate for office, and especially if you're a new candidate, and doubly especially if you're a candidate of color, particularly black, then you have to be able to navigate a primary system where in most states it's going to be white progressives who are determining the primary winner and then compete in a general election where you're going to have to tack to the center in order to bring along both black pragmatists, but also white voters who may be more centrist, less liberal, maybe even a little conservative, but don't like the current version of the Republican Party in order to win the seat. Again, there is no one message either for the party and certainly not for the constituencies within the party. So without a doubt, there's a racial component to this, both on the ideological spectrum and then also issue dependent. Speaking of the Republican Party. I think the Democratic Party has spent a good amount of time debating with itself about how to talk about race, how to talk about immigration, things like that. The debate isn't perhaps as live or as obvious in the Republican Party, but I think the question is probably just as relevant. Does the way that Republicans talk about race hurt them in elections? And, you know, In particular, we're talking about critical race theory right now. I think the general response has been, oh, you know, critical race theory will help Republicans win elections. And maybe it is framed in a certain way that will help them. But it's also notable that former President Trump was the least popular president since the beginning of modern polling during a time when the economy did really well. And notably, a majority of Americans thought that Donald Trump was racist while he was in office. I have to ask the question as well, how does the way that Republicans talk about race shape their electoral outcomes? The Republican Party has the advantage of being incredibly homogenous, certainly along race and ethnic lines. And so they are able to have more of a singular message, certainly more so than Democrats are. So the question is, what is that message? And what we have taken from the Trump 2015-16 campaign and his presidency and the 2020 campaign is that it's okay to say very explicitly 
how much you dislike or disfavor certain races or certain immigrants from certain nations over others, and there's no penalty to be paid for it. And the electoral strategy here, I think, is to mobilize white voters by either creating fear and anxiety or anger within that base. And it has been proven. Numerous political science, sociological studies show that when you prime audiences with the idea that the country's demography is changing, that white Americans will soon be in the minority, that social safety net spending is because of these lazy black folks and these undocumented immigrants, that support for more conservative positions on a range of social issues increases for those that will vote Republican. So absolutely, there is a strategy here. And the strategy has been to create a kind of anxiety, fear, or anger among its base by leveraging rhetoric around race that's intentionally divisive. And we're seeing ramifications of that. Positive for Republicans, but negative for the country. So you think it's all upside for the more explicit ways that Donald Trump talked about race in America. This is probably a debate you can use different data sets to discuss, but do you think that a more tempered, moderated version of the Republican Party would do better or worse in like a general election? So I think they would do better if it were genuine and that they were making appeals beyond the base of their electorate that they seem infatuated with pleasing now. In other words, trying to exploit people's fears and anxieties over changing demographics in our country can be a winning formula when the electorate remains small, when there's lots of non-voters, alongside all the other sort of sociotropic conditions that normally determine how elections come out. But I think a stronger, more resilient version of the Republican Party would be one that actually tries to expand its tent and changes its messaging on race so that it's not trusting on the usually disinterested but especially pissed off voter in Appalachia who decides to turn out for an election or two, who, after seeing his or her policy needs not being met, decides that all politicians are ultimately corrupt as they originally thought and opt out of elections and cede ground to the Democrats. The Republicans have leaned into the strategy and what did they get in return? Trump loses the White House, Republicans lose Congress. And they look at the Supreme Court and say, but ultimately we won. We're in a place now where neither side, and certainly never mind Democrats, Republicans don't know what the winning strategy for the next decade or two is because of the shadow of Trump over the party still and the idea that if not for a historic turnout in the election, Trump would still be president. They are not thinking of changing their messaging. They're thinking of leaning more into the culture war that led to Trump in the first place, his first presidency, in hopes that it will do the same coupled with dissatisfaction with Biden in 2024 and certainly in a few months here in the the midterms. I think we'll get a taste of what the Republican Party thinks are its strengths as we head into the general election, these midterms. There's like an obvious issue that you can really harp on, which is inflation, and that's kitchen table issue. It's a bread and butter issue. It's something that impacts every single American. And we'll be able to look at ads and speeches and things like that and compare how much of the conversation is about that versus something like critical race theory, which is potentially more niche appeal, Although, obviously, if you poll critical race theory, it's not popular. If you poll more specifically, as we mentioned here, Americans do want teachers to talk about race and racism in school. Right. I guess, what are you going to be watching to sort of understand the two parties and how they talk about race as an issue going forward as we get into the midterms? 
Look, I think the number one thing that I'm looking for, and it basically follows on from our previous conversation here about Republicans, is the number of Black Republicans that come into Congress after these midterms. And I'm looking at that number specifically, one, because it's so little. I think now there's only three, two of them are freshmen in the House, and and then, of course, there's Tim Scott in the Senate. But I think there could be as many as five or six Black Republicans that win either re-election or election this fall, which would be the largest class of Black Republicans since Reconstruction and, you know, in over a century. If that happens, then the party can both claim that CRT is bad for schools, they can do all the culture war stuff around abortion, same-sex marriage, race, critical race theory, et cetera, and say, how can we possibly be racist when we just brought in the largest class of Black Republicans? How could we possibly be racist when we've demonstrably increased the number of Hispanic Americans are supporting Republican Party based on the 2020 election compared to the years before. And so there's almost this kind of protection against the claims of exploiting the culture war because the tent appears to be diversifying. And I think if that mix of things happens, then we're going to get a worse version of the Republican Party, especially when it comes to things like voting rights, when it comes to abortion laws in the states or maybe a national ban when it comes to power given to state legislatures to overturn popular all of these kind of anti-democratic impulses we're seeing the outcome of these midterms on the race and ethnicity question could provide cover for some of these other impulses i think that is the storyline for these midterms certainly for me as it pertains to race well why do you think that is you described it as a sort of cover but to what do you ascribe the Republican coalition, including increasing numbers of Hispanic Americans and, you know, more Black Republicans getting elected? One, Hispanic Americans are not a group of people in the same way that African Americans are. So if you say that Democratic Party is becoming socialist and they're Marxist and communist, then there is a not insignificant number of Hispanic Americans that came here explicitly to avoid that kind of government, to escape that kind of government. So that has an appeal. And if on the question of being pro-life versus pro-choice, there is a contingent of pro-life Hispanic voters, maybe based on the Catholicism or, again, how they were raised or whatever, you know, sort of cultural, that Republicans can claim that the Democratic Party can't. So there's that. That has, you know, little to do with, like, the immigration talk that strategists might suggest would turn Hispanic voters off. But when you talk about the style of governance or, or cultural issues like abortion, the immigration policy in America that hasn't been good for decades may pay on comparison. For Black voters, the political science research shows that when movements capture parties, that if you're a person that's normally marginalized in that party, but you turn out to be an extreme adherent to the movement, that your fealty to the movement can overcome whatever negative impacts may result from your group identity. And so the idea that there have been more Black Republicans in Congress since the Tea Party came on the scene than in the 100 years prior is not because the Republican Party has found its messaging to Black voters. And it's not that the party's platform has changed so substantially that now there are more Black candidates interested. It is that if you aspire to political office and you are a Black candidate, if you go to the Democratic office and say, I want to run, they tell you to get in line. If you go to the Republican office and say, I want to run, and you show how close you are to the Tea Party or to Trumpism, they can't wait to put a a banner with your face on it and proclaim the, the changing face of the party and look how inclusive we are. So that, to me, is the explanation of why we're seeing 
these visible shifts in terms of like race and ethnicity on the Republican Party that has nothing to do with a changing message, improved rhetoric, or like earnest appeals to broaden the tent, but rather exploiting where they're strong and finding that the Democratic Party in these particular instances isn't able to counter it as strongly. Well, I'm sure we're going to be tracking here at 538 how the various candidates perform based on all kinds of things, endorsements, race, etc. So maybe we'll get a chance to talk again, but let's leave it there. Thank you so much for joining me today, Ted. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Theodore Johnson is director of the Fellows Program at the Brennan Center for Justice and a writer at The Bulwark. My name is Galen Druk. Tony Chow is in the, well, I was going to say virtual control room, but we're actually in the control room today, so he's in the control room. Claire Bidegary-Curtis and our intern Emily Vineski are on audio editing. Chadwick Matlin is our editorial director. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen.